Welcome on into the Superintendent Radio Network and episode 34 of Greens with Envy, the podcast where we talk about where we've been, who we've seen, who we've talked with, and pretty much everything else from the road. I'm Matt Lowell, Managing Editor of Golf Course Industry Magazine, joined as always by my friend and colleague Guy Cipriano. You'll hear from him in a second. Before we bring in Guy, before we talk about any of the courses he's been to, a few quick housekeeping notes. Our December issue, the 6th Annual Turf Heads Takeover, is live online at golfcourseindustry.com. It includes the inaugural Turf Heads Guide to Grilling. So if you need any holiday recipes, whether it's dinner or appetizers or just snacks, there might be some great new recipes for you to try out this holiday season inside the pages of Golf Course Industry Magazine. And again, the whole guide available online as well at golfcourseindustry.com. Greens with Envy is among our longer-running podcasts, but it is not the only podcast on the Superintendent Radio Network. Tartan Talks with Guy Cipriano now in its sixth year, Off the Course, where I talk with turf pros about anything other than their job. Beyond the Page, where we go a little bit beyond the page uh, of each issue of the magazine. And Rick Wolfel's Wonderful Women of Golf, all on the Superintendent Radio Network, Rick's show now entering its second year next month. Also, if you do not subscribe to our email newsletter, Fast and Firm will be delivered to your email inbox every Tuesday. That includes all the news and notes from the last week and always original content. You can sign up online at golfcourseindustry.com on the homepage. Now, let's talk about uh, one of your road trips, Guy. You... uh, you, you went to a few states last week, I think, right? I, I can't believe he actually did that. You know what that was, Matt? I know what it was because I was looking at it. I'm guessing most of the people listening to it know what it is, too. It's a bully bell. We were in the Magnolia State, Mississippi. You were. You were. Home of the Mississippi State Bulldogs. And as I was leaving the state of, actually, Louisiana on this trip, which will be another episode... Our friend, golf course architect Nathan Crace, gave me my very own bully bell, which they ring constantly in Starkville when the Bulldogs are playing home sporting events. I can't imagine a football stadium filled with people and everyone ringing one of these, Matt. If I were a hearing aid company, I would open a factory in Starkville. Those things are so loud. I don't know how anybody in in Starkville, Mississippi, still has their hearing. Those things are are ringing in my ears. Yeah, it's still a pretty cool thing to have. Uh, Quite a parting gift. Probably the second notable parting gift I've ever received on one of these golf course industry trips. You know what the uh, maybe the most memorable one is? Well, you have a few flags hanging in your office. Oh, you're not even in the ballpark. No. This happened during the Greenbrier Classic, the first year I volunteered it. And as I was leaving, one of the locals on the crew gave me a jar of something, and we will leave it at that. Yeah, well, uh, if people know where the green briar is, they can can probably figure it out. Can you imagine a a bunch of people who had been drinking out of jars ringing those bells? Yeah, I can. It's not something that I would particularly want to participate in, but I don't really drink anymore. Guy, you mentioned that. You also went to Louisiana, but you went to so many courses that that's a whole nother episode. If folks were not following along on Twitter, GCI Magazine Guy, 
you went to, what was it, 10, 11 facilities last week in five days along the Gulf Coast? So I guess it would be 12 courses and 11 facilities in five days. One of those facilities, uh, Bayou Oaks at City Park in New Orleans, I saw the South and the North course. So I consider right. that as 12 course visits. I don't even know how that's possible. But you wrote in your notes for this episode that Mississippi might be the greatest underdeveloped frontier for golf. For folks who don't know anything about Mississippi golf, much less Mississippi itself, you have some facts ready to go, I think. Yeah, so I would say that the underdeveloped frontier would be that Gulf Coast of Mississippi. And a little preface here, I spent my entire time in Mississippi two and a half days in the southern part of the state. So I didn't even make it up to Jackson, which is the biggest city in the state, or Starkville, where they ring the bells during football games, or Oxford, where they have a pretty boy, blonde-haired mm-hmm. football coach, or the, the Memphis suburbs. So this is all southern Mississippi prefaced here. But golf in the state of Mississippi, so this is according to the National Golf Foundation, 139 golf facilities in the Magnolia State, 66 daily fee, 70 courses are municipal facilities, and there are 56 private facilities in the state 49 nine hole facilities there's a pga tour tournament played in mississippi every fall the sanderson farms at the mm-hmm. country club of jackson great team markers for that event and there's also a pga tour champions event which this upcoming spring moves to grand bear so spring and fall are from what everybody told me on my visits are the best time to play golf in mississippi that's when the things are really popping color wise the temperatures are manageable in the Mm -hmm. summer not so much but well having lived in north carolina for almost three years summers in all parts of the south there's a reason there was a population boom after the creation of air conditioning so well what i found out though is so we're based in northeast ohio as people that listen to this show know uh, what we think of a hot muggy summer is what People in places like Mississippi and Louisiana think of a cold, bitter winter. So I hold, I handle the, the cold pretty well because I'm used to it. I don't handle the heat very well. Mm-hmm. It's the exact opposite with a lot of the people in those two states. They handle the heat fairly well and can't stand the cold. Now, I was there uh, early December, and it was a wonderful time to, to go. You know, I, I think the coldest it got was in the mid-40s, which – to them, nobody's on the golf courses. To me, that's yay. It's mid forties in December. <laughs> Let's go. And it got up into the uh, up into the sixties and even seventies on some of those visits. And then when I got into Louisiana, which we'll talk about in the, a later episode, it got it got into the eighties in December. In December, there was a photo of you. I don't remember which course it was, but you were on a course. You were shooting, and either Nathan was in the photo, Nathan Grace, or Nathan was taking the photo when you were out on the course that day. I believe it was 48 degrees is what you said. Again, comfortable for you. How many other people were out playing around in that weather? So this was at Hattiesburg Country Club, which we'll get to in a minute. It was just Nathan and I, and there was a guy walking on the back nine, and then there was a foursome that teed off a bit later, and, and that was it. So what you're saying is if you are a northerner, and if 48 degrees in December sounds pretty good to you, it sounds good to me, and you can take some vacation before the holidays, you should go to the south, and the courses will basically be yours. Yeah, because it's not peak tourism season. Yeah. Like People think of going to southern Mississippi and the Gulf Coast and the um, 
spring, summer, and fall, but not winter so much. And for me, it was an awesome time to go down there and visit golf courses and meet with superintendents and others because the weather, in my mind, was still very manageable and the courses weren't that crowded. You know, I've done so many visits and tours this mm -hmm. year, and so have you, Matt, where the courses are just slammed with play. Yeah. And you're trying to go around with the superintendent and you're, you're ducking golf balls and trying to get out of people's ways and not make noise when they, they putter hit shots. So it, for touring golf course purposes, it, it was an unbelievable time to be there. Looking at the format that you put together, this is basically when we dreamed up greens with envy now, what, two and a half years ago, this is the kind of episode that I envisioned a lot of. And I think the kind of episode that we're going to get back to more and more uh, as we get farther from the start of the, the pandemic you have five different courses, and I don't know that we have talked about or written about any one of these five courses, at least in my time and maybe in your time too, at the magazine, which is really, really fun. Let's start, like you said, the Gulf Coast, maybe the greatest underdeveloped frontier in golf, and that's Gulf Coast, G-U-L-F, of course. Let's start with uh, Shell Landing golf club and i see the the scorecard or is that the yardage book in front that's cool, the cool, yardage book cool logo really like the shell the, the almost like a um what kind of sh shell is that i should know this some type of sea or clam shell yeah but it's very very cool logo warm colors uh so we're off to a good start flew into new orleans on a sunday night stayed in biloxi that evening biloxi is right on the, the gulf coast and was able to wake up in comfortable weather. It was actually pretty humid out. It was like in the mid sixties and went for a run as sun was rising and you see these white sand beaches. And then as you run uh, closer towards the center of Biloxi, you see these towering structures and you know what these towering structures are, Matt, right on the coast down there in Biloxi. They're not, not oil. Are they casinos? Oh, okay. Oh. So in the late nineties and the early two thousands, we're trying to revitalize the Gulf coast, trying to attract people to come down there and, you know, stay for a few days or even stay for the, the rest of their lives. And the, the casinos were a big part of that. And with the casino development came some golf development. So when you look at that market there in the far southern part of Mississippi, a lot of the golf courses have tie-ins with the, the casinos and stay-and-play packages are really prominent. And it, it's interesting because when a lot of those casinos were opening and some of those golf courses were opening, that's when Hurricane uh, Katrina came through the coast and that certainly changed things. And that took a long time to bounce back from. And then you had the great recession and then you had a few other storms and golf was slow to pick up. And then you had the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And when that started in March of 2020, obviously a lot of the casino rooms, if not all of them were closed. So there was some of this uncertainty, what would happen with golf in Southern Mississippi, but it is exploding right now. The courses are doing big numbers. I mean, shell, shell landing, for example, I spoke with um, owner, who's also the general manager, Kenny Hughes. He's in the ownership group that mm. purchased the golf course. He's been there since the start in the late 90s. And I obviously went around with uh, Superintendent Jeremy Ely when I was on the ground there. And, and Kenny told me that you know, 2020, when they reopened the casinos down there and people got down there to the end of 2021, is one of the best stretches in the history of the course, if not the history of the course. And they're reinvesting it. They're going to be doing a uh, – Bunker project with our friend Nathan, mm -hmm. uh, going to reduce the, the size of the bunkers in nearly half, which is going to be huge for the maintenance uh, crew and also for the aesthetics and appearance of the golf course. And Shell Landing is interesting because it's a course that does not have a casino tie-in. So none of the people in the ownership group 
are affiliated with a casino. So it's this, you know, really nice Davis Love design that laid it open in the late 1990s when people were starting to build golf courses, new golf courses, pretty ambitious projects along the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. So it was a little bit different than the other courses there because it doesn't have that casino tie-in. And could you imagine uh, basically being an independently owned golf course and competing with casinos where the, the golf course is one of many amenities, right? Very interesting to be at Shell Landing, just a great golf course. Uh, you get on the sixth hole and you're only a mile from the, the Gulf of uh, Mexico. There are these uh, salt water tidal areas that are just really scenic when you get to that part of the course. And then on the back nine, you know, the 16th green faces a, a bayou, which I found out what a bayou is on this trip. Do you know what a bayou is, Matt? There was a comic book or maybe a cartoon show when I was a kid that had bayou in it. And I always thought it was like, it was like a, I almost thought it was like a, like a blend of a river and a swamp. So it's, that's close. The way the locals described it to me was smaller than a river, but bigger than a creek. Okay. So it is more like a, a flowing body of water. Yep. Okay. So the, they're, they're along some courses. And like I said, behind the 16th green at Shell Landing, there there's one. And then the 17th hole is just as, a gorgeous par three that plays over these tidal areas. And, you know, Jeremy Ely, the superintendent said, you know, this, this, that was one of his spots in the morning and just a cool golf course, busy golf course. That was probably the busiest course I visited on the trip, or at least in the Mississippi part of the trip. It's a daily fee golf course. Uh, and Jeremy and his team, which is basically less than 10 people, six really, really loyal full-time crew members, they, they get it all done on this vast property. And a bunker reduction is going to be just gigantic for what they're trying to do. And yeah, just a great place to start the trip and to, to see a golf course like that with that type of ownership model in that market was just a great place to start on Monday morning. You mentioned that the crew, maybe 10, probably single digits, very loyal. I feel like this is probably going to be a trend throughout the state. You probably because you wrote it as a theme. But uh, what is it about crews in Mississippi, at least in the five spots that you went to, which five out of 140, so you went to uh, almost, what, 4% of all Well, that's just one region, so you know, I don't really know much about central Mississippi or yeah. northern Mississippi, so I, I you know, don't claim to be an expert on golf in Mississippi. Now, our friend Nathan Kreis is the right. expert on the state and, of, and that's another golf question in the state of the Mississippi. I'm going to ask you is how many times he comes in as a supporting character in your discussion of some of these courses. Oh, he's a character, all, yeah. all right. Yeah, he is. But what was the question, Matt? Just in terms of the, the – Every the time crews. I think about Nathan, I get sidetracked because every time I talk to him, our, it's kind of like talking to you, Matt. Our conversations go a million yeah, different right. ways. No, the just the, the crews being small, being loyal is – you clearly saw this again and again at, at a lot of the courses, uh, including at Shell Landing, with maybe 10 people. Well, they have six core full-time year-round employees who, who Jeremy calls amazing, and then they fill you know part-time positions out off of that when they, they can. One thing about the crews, they work year-round. Mm -hmm. So right. you bring somebody on to work golf course maintenance in Mississippi, they're pro you do have that year round position to offer them, but no, incredibly loyal. I mean, there are people on Jeremy's crew at shell landing that have been there since the start. And when we talk about the next golf course to preserve golf club, there are people on that crew that have been there since the start when that golf course opened in 2006, you'd have these loyal crews. They're not big, but they're people that have so much pride in the golf course because they've been there for a long time and they know what the golf course means to the area and bringing people to their beautiful part of the country. And, and, 
they just know how to get the the job done. And at Shell Landing, one of the things I really found fascinating with the the spike of play, there's a lot more summer play than usual. And they start at 4 a.m. in the summer and just work Mm. through till noon, which that sounds tough, but you're getting ahead of play. And you're also getting ahead of the heat in a a lot of the ways. It's not terribly hot at that point in time. Well... Their 4 a.m. in the summer, man, is probably like our 3 p.m. in the summer here in Northeast Ohio, if not even more more humid. What's Jeremy Ely's story? Is he from the area? Is he from the state? How did he wind up at Shell Landing? So he's tw- he's from uh, a small town about 25 miles from Hattiesburg, which is where Southern Miss University is, which mm-hmm. we'll talk about here in a minute when we get to Hattiesburg Country Club. He went to Mississippi State, landed an internship at the Preserve Golf. He's been in the Gulf Coast now for the, the last 15 years, essentially, since he graduated from college. And that's another thing I noticed on the trip is that people that, that get good jobs or you know become superintendents tend to, tend to stay for a while. Most of the superintendents, from what I was told on the Gulf Coast, are people that have been in the, the role for 10 or more years. You know, Jeremy's seventh year at Shell Landing, he was uh, came from a public course in the area. So, you know, Shell Landing was a big time uh, jump up for him. And these people get the jobs at the higher level of facility on the Gulf Coast and they keep them for a while. You mentioned that Jeremy spent some time at the Preserve Golf Club. The Preserve has another superintendent, Jeremy, Jeremy Stevens. Why don't we go to the Preserve Golf Club? And they do have a tie to a resort. Is that right? Yeah, so there are two prominent um, turf figures. Well, every, everyone that works on a golf course is prominent in my mind. But sure. two, two managers there, uh, Director of Operations, Stephen Miles, who was there when they, they built the golf course, and also Superintendent Jeremy Stevens, who was there when the, since the golf course has started. And uh, Stephen and Jeremy work really well together. Stephen, obviously, is a director of operations, is t- looks over the big picture stuff, and does a lot of communication with the, uh, the people who run the Palace Casino Resort. You know, it is director of operations, less time on turf. You're seeing big picture stuff. And Jeremy's really the uh, the point person that does a lot of the, the managing of the crew. And this is a big, sprawling, natural property. There's a tie-in with the, the Nature Conservancy. In fact, the Nature Conservancy and the Preserve Golf Club maintenance team work out of uh, the same facility there on the grounds. And you just see some beautiful native areas and live oaks and pine trees and just open space. There isn't a home in, in sight. You really do feel like you're secluded at the Preserve Golf Club. And it's a 2006 uh, Jerry Pate design. Jerry Pate's a very prominent figure in Gulf Coast golf, a uh, former U.S. Open champion, obviously owns a, a, a big turf equipment distributor in that region. But no, Jerry Pate, uh, this is one of his uh, more prominent projects. It was a course that has received a lot of attention since it opened at, at 2006, it's really one of the um, courses that if people are coming down there to play a lot of courses, they're going to be going to the Preserve Golf Club. And I, I found the place fascinating. One of the things I first noticed is driving in, the speed limit on the club entrance drive is 27 miles an hour. I mean, it makes sense. I wonder if Ole Miss was the first place to really do that because their speed limit was famously a, a reference to Archie Manning and, and his jersey number. But you have a a non-zero, non-five speed limit, people are going to pay a little more attention, and they're probably going to slow down a little bit, which is the whole point. Yeah, you feel like they're letting you go faster than 25 miles an hour. Right. But you know that if you're going around 30 miles an hour, you shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. Makes sense. I, I, you know, if I didn't know any better, I, I would have thought that the 27-mile-an-hour speed limit would be the number of holes at the Preserve Golf Club. But I did my research, and it's only an 18-hole facility. And 18 miles an hour is probably a little too slow in there. So, yeah, that, 
their play numbers have been exploding. I mean, it's been one great month after another great month, according to Stephen Miles. And, you know, they're closed on Monday, so I get to see them uh, take some – how do I put this nicely? Clear some trees. Hmm. Now, things hmm. grow all over the place there yeah. because it's a year-round growing environment. You have all this underbrush that grows on the periphery of golf courses, and then out of that, you'll have various types of, of – of trees, especially kind of feeble looking pine trees start growing out of nowhere. And before you know it, they get five, 10 years old and, and they're sort of nuisance trees that don't have any, any value to the course. So Stephen miles said that we're always in competition. And I said, Oh, that, you know, it's pretty cutthroat amongst the casino courses down here. He goes, no, we're always in competition with the things that are growing on the periphery <laughs> of the golf course. And it was the same thing at shell landing. They bring in a contractor once a year with a big bobcat that just goes through and clears underbrush and undergrowth. And some of those trees that just sprout up out of nowhere. So I found that pretty interesting too. The fact that there's something growing all the time at these golf courses. And if you don't keep up on it, you know, courses that are you know only, well, in the Preserve Golf Club's case, 15 years old, and in Shell Landing's case, 22 years old, they could really look aged pretty quick if you don't keep up on those type of things. Right. I mean, it's 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 the miles, not the the time itself. And when you have 12 months rather than eight or nine months, there is no winterizing. There is no preparing for winter. There is no dormancy. It's just 12 months of trying to tame in and, and rain, rain in nature a little bit. It's a competition, and it's one that really will never have a definitive ending. No, and, th- and that's what makes folks in this industry, I think, uh, relatively humble. Is just you're never going to beat nature. Guy, you said at both courses that you visited on the Gulf Coast, Shell Landing and the Preserve, that numbers were up, and we're still waiting on the final 2021 numbers, obviously, from uh, – NGF, but uh, and Golf Data Tech, but if you had to guess, you know, overall nationally numbers are probably going to be a little bit higher this year than last year. Last year was about fourteen percent higher than twenty nineteen. How are courses in the Gulf doing? Are they better than national average? I would say that they're probably between, you know, based on what I found out at Shell Landing and the Preserve Golf Club. Without getting into specific numbers sure. too deeply here, they're you know fifteen to. 30% up. And that's because from last year, when you look at it, golf never shut down in Mississippi, but the casinos closed along the Gulf coast. So they lost some play, significant play during March and April of 2020. But since then it's just been humming. And to me, this is really a underdeveloped potential golf frontier here. You know, I'm not advocating for building, you know, hundreds or thousands of new golf courses over the United States. Cause we just don't know what's going to happen. And right. we saw the mistake of doing that in the late nineties and the early two thousands. But if you think about it, a lot of people are moving from North to South. I was in Hilton head this year mm-hmm. and Hilton head and Bluffton and the surrounding areas are just exploding with people moving from North to South. You have other really hot markets like Greenville, South Carolina, the mountains of North Carolina, where I was in August, they can't keep lots uh, on golf courses. They sell them really fast, man. Like, mm-hmm. things are going like that. You know, I'd well, ring the cowbell, but we've already yeah. had enough of that. Every time I go back to North Carolina and, and the area where I worked east of Raleigh, it's always more developed. There's always suburbs out a little farther east. Uh, Charlotte, on the other side of the state, is going to be probably a million population before too long, if it's not already. So, yep, all over the south. Well, and you think of uh, Nashville and mm-hmm. Austin, Texas. and Nashville. Asheville, North, North Carolina, Carolina too. Yeah, yeah. So it's only a matter of time 
as long as they don't get hit with another big natural disaster, which which mm-hmm. was a huge setback with Hurricane Katrina in that part of the country, it's only a matter of time that people are going to discover the Gulf Coast of Alabama and Mississippi and Florida. And I could really see people moving down there. One thing I really found fascinating with the Gulf Coast of Mississippi is that there isn't a private golf course there. So could you imagine what type of p- potential there might be to have a developer or a few developers involved with um, some homes and a private golf course that people can play whenever they want at any time of the year. And it's pretty affordable down there too, compared to your Hilton heads and Savannah's and Charleston's and Greenville, South Carolina's and the mountains of North Carolina. So uh, really, as long as uh, this trajectory continues for golf and the economy is doing okay, and there isn't another devastating natural disaster, which is a threat it's always a every threat. year, yeah. I could see golf becoming bigger in the Gulf Coast of Mississippi and more people taking golf trips down there and ultimately more people discovering this part of the country and what it has to offer and moving there, uh, if not seasonally, even year-round, and they're going to need places to, to play golf and courses to call their own. You went to a couple of courses in the Pine Belt, and I have to admit, I was not entirely familiar with the Pine Belt. I had to look it up. It's also known as the Piney Woods. And if people are looking at a map, of Louisiana and Mississippi. Louisiana is shaped like an L. And just to the east of Louisiana and the bottom of the L, there are six counties in Mississippi. That's the Gulf Coast. Directly above those six counties are nine counties. So it's the, none of the counties are really above, north of Louisiana. They're firmly in Mississippi. But it's uh, it's nine counties, still close to the Gulf, still in southern Mississippi, but not on the Gulf. So you went to two courses in the Pine Belt or the Piney Woods, which can we call it the Piney Woods? That's a great name. Yep. It sounds like a golf course, Piney Woods. You went to Hattiesburg Country Club and you went to the club at Old Brook. Uh, another couple of fun courses, another f- couple of fun experiences. Yeah, Hattiesburg Country Club is a special place, Matt. You maybe don't hear a lot of, about it nationally. But this is a golf course that maybe is as good as any golf course I've ever had the opportunity to play. It's got rolling topography, longleaf pines, and some other types of pine trees, uh, wonderful uh, Bermuda grass plague surfaces, including Tiff Eagle greens. Uh, The superintendent, Frank Ogletree, got there in 1998, right before a massive renovation was done by our friend Nathan Crace and Max Maxwell. The original routing, uh, 1959, it dates back to, it's a press maxwell design so you got the maxwell family with press involved the son of perry maxwell Mm -hmm. and the club's history dates back to 1919 so it's got that old school southern rolling topography towering pine tree vibe and it's just an amazing golf course matt holes shape in different ways Uh, the greens have all sorts of different possibilities depending on where the the hole location is there's some water hazard. The uh, the second hole is about 180 yard par three. That's a carryover water. That's <laughs> that's a smacky in the face way to to begin a round of golf. Mm-hmm. Uh, I dumped one in, in the water. I was very lucky. I, I got to play the course with Nathan, which was really awesome. We tried to get Frank Ogletree, the superintendent, to play with us, but he just wasn't having any of it. There he for, had work to do. Yeah, yeah. He, he had been there for 20. He's been there for 23 years. Also leads a crew under 10, which is amazing if you think about it. This is a, a high level country club with a crew less than 10. I mean, welcome to to Mississippi and Louisiana. I found that to be a theme down there. And Hattiesburg Country Club used to be a PGA Tour site. So back in the the day, there used to be an event called the Deposit Guarantee Classic, 
which was played the same week of the Masters. So can you believe that? There was a tournament that was going on opposite when? of the Masters. It was in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And if you look at the roll call of champions, Payne Stewart won his second PGA Tour tournament. Uh, 1987, the second place finisher was Nick Faldo. Huh. Uh, Nick Faldo was rebuilding his swing and really trying to find find his game. And can you believe that? Nick Faldo wins back-to-back Masters in 1989 and 1990. And there he was in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, you know, a few years before doing that, trying to find his golf game and wasn't even a Masters invite at that time. I was not even in kindergarten at that point in time, 1987. So I have, I have no recollection of these tournaments, and I did not know that existed. When did that tournament stop? Do you know? It stopped in the early 90s, I believe okay. 1992 or 1993. All right, I feel a lot better now because my Sports Illustrated collection goes back to 1995. So if it happened before 1995, there's a, a chance that I know it if I've researched it, but I feel I feel better. You know what other notable professional golf event happened in Hattiesburg, Mississippi? Think of the most high-profile golfer of our lifetime. Okay. Think of the addiction he had. Okay. And think of uh, what he had to do once oh. news of that addiction is became that where, public. Is that where Tiger went to rehab? Yep. Really? I didn't. Okay. Forgot about that. Huh. Not for substance abuse. No, For, no, for no. something else. Right. And I think everyone listening to this right. show knows what we're talking about. Right. And, and, you know, he's obviously, he's gone through that. He's done what he needs to do. That's neither here nor there. So Hasbro Country Club, you mentioned... 1919, you said that, you wrote it in your notes. Where does that rank? Do you know? It has to be one of the handful of oldest and most storied courses in the state of Mississippi being 100 and almost three years old now. Yeah, but we're going to get something to something older here in a few minutes, Matt. Okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll tackle both of those when we get there. Uh, the club at Old Brook. So this was the result of a merger of two courses. Is that right? This was a bonus visit. I really honestly did not know that this golf course existed. Nathan told me, he goes, oh, you got to call the GM and you can stop by on your way from Hattiesburg to, to Natchez. So uh, I get out of Hattiesburg Country Club around 2 p.m., which can we go into the ownership of Hattiesburg Country Club? So it's, it's sure. owned by a, a PGA member named Carter Calloway, and the other owner is a former Major League Baseball player named Paul Mahalam. Now, for me, this is a big name in my own personal life. So my first job out of college was at the Williamsport Sun-Gazette, and I covered the minor league baseball team in town. The Crosscutters. The Williamsport Crosscutters. And I got there at the end of the 2002 season. So the 2003 season was the first full season that I covered of the short season team. So the Williamsport Crosscutters played in a short season Class A league. They, they're still – a, a team called the New York Penn League. Now they play in the Major League Baseball Draft League, which is a story for another day. But so 2003 is w- really where I, I covered it from the Major League Draft and the players that were arriving in town to the end of the season. Well, they were a Pittsburgh Pirates affiliate at, at the time, and their first-round pick was a left-handed pitcher from Mississippi State named Paul Mahalam. So 18 years later, I got to go back and – you know, experience a golf course that he co-owned and the pro shop manager who I had a long conversation with was Mike Mahalam, who is Paul Mahalam's older brother. Hmm. Okay. So getting family some job. Now, when I was a kid and I was following baseball, I always thought it was Mayholm or Mahalm, but knowing that he was from Mississippi, the elongation of the name Mahalam turning two syllables or syllables as my 
high school Spanish teacher would say, into three makes a lot more sense. Yeah, and Paul Mahalan played for the, the Pittsburgh Pirates. He made it through the farm system pretty mm-hmm. quick. I mean, he was a really a polished left-hander from a major university. You right. knew the guy was going to become a big leader, big leaguer. And then he also played for the Atlanta Braves, which was the team that he rooted for growing right. up. But he was a giant golf enthusiast, even at the beginning of his major league baseball or minor league baseball, professional baseball career. And I remember I used to spend time with him in the clubhouse talking about golf and you know he was dreaming of uh playing all sorts of golf courses when he made the big leagues and i was probably dreaming of becoming a golf writer well now i think you've both achieved your dreams yeah but he gets to own a uh awesome country club in hannesburg mississippi well, i mean and his, let me tell you this his is salary he, history is on baseballreference.com. you can look up how much paul mahalan made as a left-handed pitcher in baseball if you want it was, it was a fair bit of money he made enough to buy a really nice golf course yeah yeah well and, you know, I, I, this is what I call an all-day, everyday golf course before we move on to the club at Old Brook. You could play Hattiesburg Country Club all day, every day, and the people there were so nice. You know, it wasn't a snotty club. I mean, there were guys playing in jeans when we were out there and just a comfortable clubhouse with a patio where you can have a drink. And it was I, – I could sit here and talk three hours about Hattiesburg Country Club, but we need to get you on your way, Matt. Well, you mentioned – by Wednesday of last week that you had enough to write a book after three days. So you got you to start writing a book. Yes. Yeah, so speaking of that book, that bonus visit, which uh, the club came, at Old Brook. which used to be called Brookhaven Country Club and Brookhaven Country Club has a history that extends to the 1930s when it opened as a nine hole course. And then it became an 18 hole course in 2000. Our buddy Nathan did the project there again. He's everywhere. Well, he's everywhere in the state of Mississippi. He really is omnipresent. So Nathan's like, Hey, on your way over to Natchez, give this guy a call and, you know, go check out the old Brookhaven, which is the club at Old Brook now. It formed uh, – it was really close to just dying in 2020 around the time of the pandemic. And even before the pandemic, it was going through some ownership changes and people weren't sure if it was going to exist anymore. And it's the only golf course in Brookhaven, Mississippi, which is a really charming small town. I think it's somewhere around like you know, twenty to 30,000 people, maybe fifteen to – 25,000 people, okay. somewhere in that range. So could you imagine a town like that without having a, yeah. a golf course? So Big enough to have a burgeoning uh, mainstream. It I'm formed sure. Brookhaven Country Club, merged with Brook Hill on Natchez, which was a tennis club. They formed this one country club in the back half of 2020, and they needed someone to manage it and maintain it. So a gentleman named Jeff Henning, who was a commercial roofing salesman, that's what he was working as, but a longtime member, grew up playing the Brookhaven course, one of those people that had – a special connection to the club. And as the club had tough times over the years, he was always someone that pitched in and helped. Well, he was a commercial roofing salesman. The COVID-19 pandemic limited, limited the amount of travel that he did. I think he covered a territory that included like Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, maybe parts of Tennessee. So could you imagine being a salesperson on the road all the time and then having to work from home? A lot of people aren't wired to do that, right? Like no. one of the reasons they, they, they get into sales or any job is they like that thrill of the chase and they like being out and about and traveling. So anyway, Jeff Henning's kind of contemplating what he wants to do. They needed somebody to oversee operations of the club. The owners came to the, the Jeff knowing that he was a loyal member who had pitched in and knew different parts of operations throughout the year and said, oh, why don't you uh, run this place for us? So Jeff Henning now is the general manager, superintendent of his hometown club after – a career as a commercial roofing salesman. He's 57 years old. I called him just randomly on my way. I'm like, hey, I'm stopping by. Do you have time to show me the golf course? And he showed me all of it. 
we had a walk around it as the sun was setting and you could tell that this is someone that just has a connection with the the property he leads a maintenance team of three people so there you go again small crews that just get the job done the new owners have invested in some new equipment which has really helped uh they're polishing up some parts of the course and you know jeff has big plans for this and wants to see the course return to its glory uh they rebranded as the club at old brook uh, brookhaven country cool club was you know considered one of the um one of the top private clubs in mississippi at, at one point you know when it got rolling in the uh, early 2000s after the course changes and became eight, 18 holes. It was very highly regarded. And as you go around with Jeff Henning, you just realized how personal this whole thing was for him. And he said, you know, give me a few years, you know, give us three years and come back. And it was still, an, uh, I was so impressed with what they did when you consider this is a course that was really on the brink of closing and it had a successful year this year. And they're going to build off that in 2022 and build off it in 2023. And, you know, you know hopefully, in 2024 it really gets rolling and becomes a destination type course it's semi-private right now and uh one of those i guess underdog turf stories that you're just rooting hard for back in 2019 and early 2020 i wrote a series of stories about course revitalizations and we haven't written one in almost two years i think i've got enough for another series so maybe we'll maybe we'll do a proper story yeah there are a lot of places like the club at old brook out there that are turning themselves around because of determined and gritty people and some new ownership. And even, you know, in some cases and the ones that you wrote about a few years ago, homeowners just taking control mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. These stories are everywhere. And it was cool to see one of them with my own eyes in Brookhaven, Mississippi. Very cool. Anything else on the pine belt before we get to one of the oldest courses in the state of Mississippi? Yep. Let's get to Natchez. All right. So you write the border and this is the Natchez golf club at Duncan park. 100 and almost six years old. This was another bonus visit. I kind of purposely had built a 20 hour stretch into the trip where I wasn't going to do any course visits and that really didn't play out. So no, it never does for you. I stayed, I guess it would have been on Tuesday night after leaving Hattiesburg country club and the club at old Brook. I stayed at a town called Natchez, Mississippi, which was on the Mississippi river. I stayed in this cool hotel called the the, the Grand Hotel in Natchez, it was right along the river. And Natchez is this, you know, river town that they had the um, the big cruise ship there. So I did a run along the Mississippi. They got bluffs overlooking in it. They have a nice downtown with some hills and elevations and some cool old churches and some local businesses. And it's that type of place. Well, I woke up on Wednesday morning. I had to be in Alexandria, Louisiana at 1230 for some visits. I just couldn't stay away. So I headed to uh, the Natchez Golf Club at Duncan Park which is a 18-hole course. The back nine dates back to 1916. The front nine, 1993. So the back nine is actually the older nine on the course. Right, the back I was nine just is gonna, the old front nine. I was just going to play nine holes walking by myself. You know, I just couldn't stay away from golf that morning. You know, I, I did a run, woke up at 4 a.m., did my run, had breakfast. Everything was done by 8. I was thinking of um, maybe doing some non-golf stuff, but I'm like, I just can't stay away. I'm in a town. It has a golf course. The golf course has a history that extends to 1916. So I get in the parking lot, pull my clubs out of the car. I was the first person there. You know, of course you were. Cold, colder morning, <laughs> 9 a.m. there. You know, temperatures in the high 40s, low 50s. Not a lot of people are going to be out when you can play golf year-round. And this gentleman goes, hey, you're the golf writer, right? Of course somebody calls you out. I said, yeah, well, I happen to be. And I went over and introduced myself. Well, turns out Jeff Henning texted Greg Brooking is the gentleman I'm talking about. He's a superintendent and pro at the – Natchez Golf Club at Duncan Park and said that, oh, you know, a golf writer might be coming out. 
on <laughs> Wednesday morning. And this is funny because I couldn't find an email for Greg Brooking, and I knew that I was going to be in Natchez, and I tried calling the course, and I guess the message never got to him the week before when I called the course. So somehow he's expecting me, even though we didn't even really make contact. Had a uh, great conversation with him. He, he, Another person that just maintains a cool golf course with three people. Three. Uh, yeah, wow. he's also the pro and uh, Natchez resident, really passionate about the course, grew up hmm. playing there. Uh, you'll find this. He's in his mid-60s now, Matt, but you'll find this fascinating. He's run a 10K in under 33 minutes and a 5K in under 17 minutes. And he's also shot, oh, hundreds if not thousands of golf rounds in the 70s throughout the course of his life. At what age did he run those times? Uh, you know, we didn't get tough. into that. We only had so much time. Yeah, He's pretty busy trying to uh, I have, lead a crew of three people. I, I had to hustle yeah. to get to Alexandria. So what I did was I walked the back nine, which was a Seymour Dunn design. Seymour Dunn was a Scottish pro, laid out the back nine in 1916 for the city of Natchez, Mississippi, and it still exists. And, you know, everything Greg was telling me, it's the, the same routing, pretty close to its current form. And uh, Duncan Park also had ball fields, picnic tables, frisbee golf, a big former plantation house on the backside of the course with a ginkgo tree along the 12th tee. I saw your tweet about the ginkgo tree, and it got quite a few responses. Not a native of North American tree. No, no. Very colorful. Uh, lots of leaves that fall at the same time to clean up. But uh, I had not seen one of those. Or if I had seen one on a golf course, I guess I just never noticed it. Uh, the course was uh, – you felt like you were stepping back in time. The clubhouse looks like it had been there since 1916, just as hmm. kind of one level white clubhouse with circular pillars by the entrance. Really cool spot. And, you know, you could tell that Greg Brooking had a lot of pride in the course and what it has become and what it was and the history of it. And he said Duncan Park encompasses 220 acres, the entire park. But he said this is our central park for Natchez, Mississippi. And I thought that, wow. that was really cool. And it's cool to see a golf course. The back nine played around ball fields. There were picnic tables off the side of some tees. Walking trail really felt like a uh, a big part of that community. That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah, and the 17th hole to the right of the fairway, which would have been to the right of the 18th fairway, had one of those old-school drainage ditches that you kind of see in the older pictures of golf courses, you know, where they can just move water. The turf varieties are a blend of Bermuda grasses. There obviously isn't a mono stand when you have a course that's that old with um, you know, limited resources, but I mean, it, it plays wonderful, a lot of strategy involved. And uh, one of those places that you just never really hear about until you go to a town and go out and discover the golf course. And I would say that end this episode, that's kind of like Mississippi golf. You don't really hear a lot about it. Right. And the national golf scene, and it's like everywhere else. There's super cool stuff there. They're great people that maintain this cool stuff. You just have to go and find it, Matt. And really that was part of the reason why I took this trip is we were coming up on the end of the year. Uh, we had some money left in the travel budget. If you don't burn money in your budget lines, you may not have it the next year. And and that is one great lesson I learned from more than one yeah. uh, legendary turf pro is always tried to be $1 under budget every year. Not a dollar over, not even $1 under budget because that way you used it and, and they aren't going to take it away from you next year, probably. Yep, and we just wanted, I wanted to tell and have golf course industry tell some great stories about places and facilities that a lot of our readers don't know about, and we stumbled into some. What's a level be- above great? Incredible. Amazing, incredible, marvelous. surreal, marvelous. Pick your adjective. We, we came into those type of stories. We haven't even made it to Louisiana yet, so you know, one of the things is to take a trip like that, you have to have 
good people back at the office. So obviously that wouldn't be possible without you, Matt. We'll get on to Louisiana in the next podcast, but that was just Mississippi. Yeah, this is essentially a two-parter. Mississippi was the first part. We'll get to Louisiana. 11 courses, well, 11 facilities, 12 courses in five days. I don't know how you do it, guy. It's, it's, that's amazing. Yeah, when I got home on Friday night, I don't know how I did it either. But (laughs) there's people that do way tougher things in the world and we'll get into oh, that yeah. in Louisiana no, when we get into yeah. some of the storm cleanups of recent years. Yeah, you feel exhausted from a trip like that, but then when you think about it, you're visiting golf courses and great people and they're much tougher things to do in life. Sure. Like listening to cowbells. He's gonna do it again by the Before way. Before we get going here yourself. That's Matt Lowell, our managing editor. I'm Guy Cipriano, the editor in chief, and we will just leave you with this one noise. <laughs>